Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Bernie Orovec and Laura Jansen, authors of A Community Keystone. We're in Williamsport at the Sun Gazette newspaper, and our guests today are Bernie Orovec and Laura Jansen, and they are the compilers and authors of this book, A Community Keystone, the official history of the Williamsport Sun Gazette. Uh, Laura, we'll start with you. If somebody buys this book, what do they get? Well, they get um, 216 years worth of history of just the newspaper plus the community. Uh, the newspaper being uh, integral to the development of Williamsport. Um, we were here documenting um, life from the very beginning. Uh, we began in 1801. Williamsport became a borough in 1806. And so when our earliest um, owner arrived in Williamsport, there were half a dozen buildings. That was it. So, you know, Things were just getting started. And we followed it all the way through um, with photos that show Williamsport over time, a lot of the major developments, um, a lot of the, you know, the ups and downs. There were major fires and floods and stuff like that, as well as construction and, um, you know, just different things that happened. Did you um, know much about the history when you started this project? Well, yes, I'd worked here for over three decades when I started this project. Was very familiar with our archives. I've written my own uh, share of history stories back when I was a reporter, um, followed through uh, as an editor, picking out history photos um, that we would run weekly. Um, and then of course, advising younger reporters as they were writing history stories of their own. So yeah, you do, when you work at a community newspaper, you do learn a lot about it. Bernie, for people who are not familiar with Williamsport, who have never been here, where is it? A little bit about it. Well, we're geographically located in north central Pennsylvania. Um, we're about three hours from New York, three hours from Philadelphia, and the closest big cities to us would be uh, State College, Wilkes-Barre. So we're towards the uh, north central section of the state. How big an area is it? Uh, geographically, Lycoming County is the largest county in Pennsylvania. Uh, Williamsport is spread out over a number of miles. There's a lot of suburbs that are considered part of Williamsport even though it's technically not the same municipality. Um, actual miles, I wouldn't be able to answer that, but it's a, it's a rather large footprint. Today, who are the big employers? The big employers in the area are the, are the health systems, uh, a lot of the hospitals, the local colleges like Homing College, Penn College, uh, as well as a, uh, a lot of folks who are involved with the natural gas and oil drilling. Is there a reason for tourists to come here? Yeah, I think, I think it's a very scenic area to come to. A lot of folks come up here for hunting and fishing. There are a lot of uh, private cabins along the rivers and in the forests around the area. Uh, we also are the home to the Little League World Series. So every year, Williamsport welcomes the entire world for two weeks, uh, which is an enormous uh, tourist, tourism boost to the area. Now, for you two as natives, when Little League World Series time comes, do you hunker down and try to mind your own business, or do you go out to the games? I mean, how, how how do you survive the, the, 
hundreds we, of thousands of people coming here. We cover the series um, heavily, so uh, we don't really hunker down so much as we get to work. Um, our staff, uh, a lot of the news reporters and photographers get diverted into going over to do additional coverage at Little League beyond what our sports staff does. Um, the editors uh, get involved. We put out an extra section every day during the series, um, Little League Extra. So, yeah, we get real busy. Um, it also seems that uh, over the years we've noticed different times where if Little League is happening, you've got the eyes of the world on you, and there's additional events that get planned and news conferences that get held just because, well, it's a good time when there will be a lot of attention. So we get real busy during Little League. So if, if people have never been to the Little League World Series, what's the experience like? Well, I, I was going to kind of go into that. My, uh, my experience is a little bit different from Lord's. I'm not a native of the area. I grew up in Johnstown in western Pennsylvania, and I've always been in the Williamsport market for the past 10 years. So even in my own personal experiences, I had never been to the Little League World Series until I started as publisher of the Williamsport Sun Gazette. So for someone coming in from the outside who maybe doesn't even have a lot of uh, experience with Little League in general, even in their hometowns. It's basically a, a worldwide event. You get to see people from all over the world, teams from Japan, from Australia, from Europe and Asia. And it's a, it's a very interesting uh, mix of tourists, locals, natives, a lot of Pennsylvania folks will come in for a few days. And uh, some of the bigger games, especially if it involves a Northeastern team, will generate 25 to 40,000 spectators uh, just five miles over the bridge from us. There's a lot of outside media in town that, that week? Yeah, we're, we're overwhelmed with, with outside media. A lot of the big national firms, ESPN, ABC, uh, newspapers from all over the world, uh, from Japan, from the Middle East, and uh, we're kind of the hub of it. I mean, we've been covering Little League since its inception in the late 1930s, and we've been covering every World Series since, I believe, 1947-48 when it began. So we're basically the newspaper of record for Little League, and our archives show you know, that we've been part of it since the very beginning. So even though we're one of hundreds of local media or national media and international media covering the event, we're kind of the keystone to it. And a lot of the local and international folks will come in and you know, want to look at archives, talk to us about reporting, use photographs, things of that nature. Uh, where are we sitting right now? We're sitting in the central downtown of Williamsport. And the newsroom? We're actually sitting in the lobby of the Williamsport Sun Gazette. Uh, the newsroom is on the second floor. Uh, where we're seated now is the split between retail advertising and classified advertising, or the main desk. How long has the paper been in this building? The paper's been in this building since 1909. Uh, the building was put up new over a two-year period. And when it was opened, one of the advertisements promoting the building was it was a fireproof building that was eventually going to become a skyscraper. Now, we're only actually two stories above ground but the building was designed to take on another two stories, and we were going to be at one time the highest building in the city of Williamsport. Now that never materialized, it wasn't necessary. Uh, we basically used the two upper floors for office space and the lower floor, the basement, and surrounding areas for our printing operation. So the printing presses are here yes, also? all the presses are right here in the building. And the newspaper, what is, what is your footprint? What's your circulation? Well, the footprint uh, goes as far north as the New York border. We also do some uh, distribution and some uh, promotion in the Elmira area right across the New York border. Uh, we go west as far as uh, Clinton County, the Lock Haven area, and to the east and the south, southeast, we're going uh, 
through uh, Montgomery, Hughesville, Muncie. It's, a, it's one of the larger footprints of a, of a newspaper in the area outside of the big urban metros. Now, Laura, going back to the history of the paper, it, it, the, the paper always says it was founded in 1801. Yes. So what would have possessed somebody to start a newspaper in Williamsport in 1801? Well, back then, uh, land was available for people who wanted to move out to the frontier. Um, you have to remember, our nation was only, what, 25 years old at the time? Um, so there was a land office in Philadelphia. Uh, there were legal ads that had to be produced. They had to be printed up by a newspaper of record. That would be the Lycoming Gazette in 1801. Um, there was a printer from Sunbury, uh, William Byers. He came here and started the newspaper and it took off. There were people who would buy it and read it. And, and yes. You said there were only like a half a dozen houses? Yes. Um, so it wasn't like what you see today where we've got four sections coming out and a big broadsheet. It was, it was more of like a four-sheet uh, paper that, you know, was printed on a hand-operated press. Um, uh, what's the early, earliest surviving copy of the paper you have? 1807, is it? Yes, 18, November of 1807. Yes, November of 1807. And the big article that day was a report on a meeting with the assorted Indian tribes in this area. Um, well, not exactly right here in this area, but Pennsylvania. Um, and they had developed a treaty, and it was a pretty detailed report. Did you read a lot of the old papers putting this book together? Oh, yes. Um, a lot of this uh, came from research done on microfilm. Um, all of, well, not all of our papers, as many as could be preserved by the time they started doing the microfilm. Um, so you might have a, a, a lot of editions that would be missing, but you'll find enough of them there to be able to trace a lot of the history. Well, what does it read like? What does it read like? Well, it's very tiny print. I don't know how they read it back then. Um, very tiny print, and the letters, uh, you had to get used to reading them. There would be a lot of descenders on letters like, like an F, where it would look like an S. Um, so it did take a little bit of time for me to you know, be able to read through um, the stuff I was looking for. Uh, it was very interesting. There were different reports that, you know, this man ran off with this other man's wife and, you know, it'd just be like two paragraphs. And uh, there were no headlines in the paper in the beginning back then. Uh, headlines actually didn't start for decades later. Um, so, yeah, it's very interesting stuff. It wasn't the sort of thing you would find in a, in a newspaper today. There were a lot of reports that would just be, um, you know, we heard this, and so we're writing about it, but we heard about it, you know, something that happened on a, on a boat out at sea, and we're getting word about it, and just putting a few paragraphs in. Um, it wasn't the sort of journalism that you see today where there's a lot of attribution, a lot of sourcing. Were there ads? Yes. Yes, there were a lot of, uh, a lot of small classified style ads. Uh, in the edition that we referenced from 1807, there were a couple ads for uh, mash whiskey, the whiskey was ready and you could buy it by the barrel or the keg or the jug. There were also a lot of ads for cows, horses, um, poultry, livestock. And then every now and then there would be an ad in some of the early papers about uh, indentured servants that had run away or apprentices that owed someone money and basically split town. And they were trying to recover them and they would offer rewards of, of 15 cents or 75 cents right. for the return of someone who ran away. 
And so it was, it was a fascinating read, but when you really stop and think about it, it wasn't all that different as far as the way the little classified ads were lined up, the stories were lined up. It's just now everything has to be vetted uh, much more closely than it did 200 years ago. Now, you're the publisher here in yes. the paper. If yes. you were the publisher of the paper in the early 1800s, what would your job have been? Um, probably smearing anyone I didn't like. I mean, that's basically what a lot of those papers were in the early uh, 1800s, mid-1800s. Most papers had a political uh, agenda that they followed. Uh, they were very personal on attacks within the community and throughout surrounding communities. Uh, certain businessmen would buy and sell newspapers just to get, get after their opponents or their competition. And that would especially happen in the political realm. If there was, for example, a judge in office that, that I maybe didn't like as a successful businessman, I would start my own paper or buy another newspaper and then talk about how evil that judge is. And that went on for almost 75 to 100 years off and on until journalism started to really get um, moved forward the way it has today, where everything is factual, everything's a little more detailed and vetted. So everybody in town knew that paper X was the Whig paper and paper Y was the oh, Republican yes. paper? Um, there, at one point in the mid-1800s, there were dozens of newspapers operating in Williamsport. And, you know, a lot of them would only be in existence for a year or two, and then they would fall by the wayside. Um, there were publications that were begun just to support a certain party. Um, in fact, at one point, the Lycoming Gazette was purchased by a man who became city mayor because he wanted to have a mouthpiece, a quote-unquote mouthpiece. And uh, that was Peter Herdick, who was a lumber baron. Um, another big part of our history is the lumbering industry. And uh, that's what this town really was built up on in the mid-1800s. Um, there was uh, the big lumbering era. Uh, a lot of people got rich here. Um, and a lot of people moved here and our population took off. The circulation of the newspaper likewise took off. Well, you mentioned that it was the Lycoming Gazette you trace yes. your origin to. Yes. How many different name changes and permutations? I mean, how, how do you There are the about a half a dozen. Um, in fact, while I was researching this, it was a challenge to keep straight everybody. So I started to develop a family tree of sorts, and that's in the first of the three appendixes at the back of the book. Um, it's a list of all of the proprietors, owners, publishers, editors. Um, you know, as uh, time moved forward, you know, it, it went from proprietors who basically were printing a paper each day uh, to publishers and, you know, the, the president of the company as opposed to a, pre to a publisher during one era. Um, in 1990, when Ogden Newspapers purchased the Sun Gazette, uh, we went to a publisher system where there, there have been a series of publishers in the building um, overseeing operations here in Williamsport. In the, in the early days, did newspapers make money? Yeah, they, they made money. They didn't make as much as, as, as one would imagine today. Um, I think a lot of them, again, as Lord stated, a lot of the newspapers were designed to, to get across a certain ideology, a certain point of view, but there were opportunities to make money. Uh, people did subscribe to the newspaper as they do today. Um, there were also opportunities for advertisements, nothing that we would recognize today other than things that look more like a classified line ad, which would be small paragraphs describing different products. But you really didn't have a lot of artwork, you didn't have a lot of designed ads in a border 
the way you started to um, see them appear in the late 1800s. So it was basically um, a bunch of, of small stories, small um, posts for products or services that were just listed as if they were written up on a typewriter. And then they were all put together, placed on the page. And then usually, in most cases, the newspapers prior to the late 1800s, in most cases, were weeklies. And then around the 1870s or so, you started to move towards the daily newspaper. At that time, there were some printed in the afternoon, some printed in the morning. And over time, when you go back and follow our lineage as the Sun Gazette, uh, you can see how one would merge with another, would consolidate with another to lead us to where we are today. Uh, was there, how was it distributed? Was there home delivery or there was newsboys on the street hawking them? It's probably a combination. I don't think you had true, true home delivery at that time. I think you had people coming to pick it up or it was dropped off in certain areas to be picked up. Uh, we really couldn't get to the bottom of exactly how it was distributed prior to the 1860s. Yeah, there was um, some indication of distribution by post um, when you were sending it out to like Hughesville or somewhere that was a little distant from Williamsport. Do you remember back then, what was there? There was horse and buggy. There was, you could use the river if you could find a way to navigate it. Uh, then came the canals, then came the trains, um, and post roads were being developed. Uh, there was one newspaper that referenced how long it took to get from one town to another, you know, in, along post roads. It would take hours, if not days, for the mail to be delivered. So if our newspaper was going in the mail as a weekly, you can imagine how long it might take to get from here to Hughesville. I want to go back a little bit to what, what you said about the paper was originally it was clear what the political slant yes. of each newspaper was and, and that tended to change. And now you look at the, the television news networks and mm -hmm. people seem to clearly think that certain networks are mm -hmm. of the left and certain networks of, are of the right. Are we going back to that early era and when did the idea of objective mm -hmm. uh, news start? I, I, th I think the true objective news really didn't start till very late in the 19th century, early 20th century you still had some very vicious um, local, state, and presidential campaigns in the late 1880s, 1890s, um, where you still had the, the old style, what used to be called yellow journalism, where they would just basically slander and, and slam an right. opponent. Uh, what you're seeing today is not so much on the local level. Most of your, your medium to small town newspapers are pretty much down the middle, uh, you know, promoting whatever happens to be big in their area. The national media, though, as a whole, whether it's some of the large national publications, national um, radio, television, there has been uh, what seems to be a little more of a slant politically. So I guess on the national level you see that. On the local level you don't see it as much. Most news you see, uh, for example, most of the newspapers of Pennsylvania, pretty down the middle on the news. You will have slanting on the editorial pages, left or right, depending on what the, what the philosophy is of the ownership or the newspaper publisher at the time. So all in all, um, most newspapers I think are doing a pretty good job trying to stay down the middle and then saving their opinions strictly for the editorial page. Going back to the 1800s, would the job of a, a newspaper reporter or publisher or editor have been a prestigious job in town, or were they seen as kind of seedy? I, I think it would have been prestigious to be the proprietor. It was pretty much a one-man operation. Hmm. Um, there are references to, uh, in my research, to how who was actually putting together paragraphs 
that's what they called them, paragraphs. Um, some of the early proprietors, you know, might have had a couple of people in there working with them to help print the paper, but they were not big operations. Um, if, if you think about, you know, how small the town was, it kind of helps, helps to put that into perspective. I want to go back again to the, uh, the 1800s, and you write in here, in 1830, you quote, uh, the leading sports of the time were fox chasing, horse racing, foot racing, quoits, and target shooting. Yes. A little different than today. Very different from today. Uh, there wasn't a lot to do in town. Uh, there's also a frog pond right up the street from here, and that's where the little boys went to catch frogs and entertain themselves. I thought that was different. I can't imagine it. So could the, the whole history of the, the, uh, the town and the region unfold as you were reading the yes. old newspapers? When, yes. Like when the logging industry came in, was that something that was happening while the newspapers were active? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, the newspaper has continually published since 1801. So we documented all of it all along the way. Um, and Peter Herdick, he was a lumber baron. He was one of our owners at one point. Of course, he was also mayor and, you know, had the boom. He had this, that, and everything else. A lot of properties built churches up and down West 4th Street. So, yeah. What was the boom? Uh, the lumber boom. Um, it was a series of cribs that were constructed in the river to catch the logs as they were being floated downstream. Again, how are you getting your product? You're going up into the mountains, cutting down the, the timber, and then you've got to find a way to get it to market. So the river is the logical way to do it. And, and I think jumping in there, in the, in the early and middle parts of the, uh, of the 19th century, from about the 1820s to about the 1870s, where you had a lot more development on the East Coast, a lot of lumber was needed for housing, and as you started to expand, as America expanded westward, a lot of lumber was used for um, railroad timbers, railroad ties, you know, wagon construction, just general wood being shipped out west because they didn't have any planing mills or lumber yards out, you know, beyond, really beyond Ohio to a certain point. And the further westward uh, the, the nation moved, the greater demand there was for lumber. And at one point, I mean, this area, the Williamsport, Central Pennsylvania, was the lumber capital of the entire world. There was more square footage of lumber coming out of here. We had more millionaires living in about a five mile radius than anywhere else in the world at one point. And just a few blocks away from here, there's still a large section of town called Millionaire's Row, which are all Victorian and pre-Victorian mansions that line both sides of the street for about six blocks. So this was a, an amazing, place from the mid-1800s through the Gilded Age of the late 1880s, 1890s. Are the high school sports teams still called the Millionaires? Yeah, yes. the, main, the main Williamsport High School is called the Millionaires, and their logo is a top hat, a cane, and white gloves. It's very quaint. <laughs> um, can you trace the, uh, the coming of the Civil War through the newspaper? You can. You can, yes. Um, the lumber era also uh, a lot of a lot of lumber was needed during the war, and uh, I saw references to to how much um, how much lumber went through the mills here. Um, Did the paper have a slant pro-abolition or anti-republican or democrat? Depending on who owned who owned it at it any switched. given time, yes, yes. Um, you could see that there were um, the anti the the anti-masons the 
um, the Whigs, the different political parties, the uh, abolitionists, um, and we have references to some of the advertisements, the, the logos in this book that were used during the war, those political parties. Did they have reports on what was going on in the war? There were reports about what was going on in the war. A lot of times these reports were received later and, you know, as they would come in, they would be written about. Um, you have to wonder how accurate, you know, was everything. We didn't have uh, the AP wire during the Civil War. So you don't have, um, you know, the computers, the technology that we, we have today. You don't have, um, you know, these types of stories that are being transmitted instantaneously. So you would see things about uh, somebody's son or daughter, or not daughter, but son, um, word being received back um, about this person who was wounded and, you know, whatever, whatever happened. We also had um, a local band, the Repaz Band, um, who performed, uh, they, they went off with our local units um, to the war, and then they performed at the surrender down in Appomattox that ended the war, yes. So, so there, is a, there is a pretty good history with the Civil War. We've also, as, as um, casualties would come in, they would be printed in the paper. Uh, there were often pro and anti-slavery ads printed. This is when you began seeing display advertising as we know it now with artwork. There might be a, 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 a drawing, a line drawing of, of possibly a slave in chains and then some comment about freeing this, this individual. So you started to get into the more the political commentary through the artwork and the design. And uh, it, it was interesting during the Civil War as well because you had um, reporters on both sides. A lot of times the actual battle stories would be a little more sensationalized than they would be today. But uh, th this newspaper, like so many, just played a pivotal role, played a pivotal role in covering um, their hometown troops when it came to the Civil War. I want to ask you about something you have in here that was just after the Civil War in the 1870s. And they say, in those days there were a good many itinerant printers they were a class by themselves. These gentry would blow into town with their old straw hats, clay pipes, and last season's hand-me-downs and be at home in five minutes in any print shop. Itinerant yeah. printers. Yeah. So what happened is, um, you know, they would come in, they would know how to, how to operate, oh, what did they call that? A stick and the letters in the case, and they would put together all of the, all of the letters for the stories that would go in the paper and just plug it into place so that they could print the paper. Um, you know, they weren't like hired by the newspaper. They were paid for the job they were doing. So the newspapers didn't need full-time people to do that? Well, I imagine they probably needed some full-time people. It wasn't really clearly explained um, in, you know, the, the microfilm uh, research that I did. Um, I trusted what I found that we'd printed previously and I went with it because a lot of living sources from 1800s, you know, not, the, you couldn't find them. You had, to, you had to trust what the paper printed. Who were some of the interesting characters you came across while putting this book together? Oh boy, there were a lot of them. Um, there was one, um, one of the proprietors who liked to write about an, a woman named Emily. And there's question whether or not Emily ever existed or if he would write these things. They were rather salacious. 
Um, he would write them just to increase circulation. And other newspapers around the state would write uh, in their columns on their opinion pages um, what this guy was writing about in Williamsport and you know, they'd poke fun at him a bit. Um, but whatever, uh, you know, his, his reason, the circulation grew. And so, you know, maybe that was a brilliant move. I'm gonna ask you about this gentleman. One of the most influential figures in the long history of the Gazette and Bulletin was Orange Brown. Yeah. First of all, what kind of name is Orange? I always love that name. You know, years ago, I was uh, covering a, a historical talk at the James B. Brown Library. Orange Brown's brother was James B. Brown. Um, the, uh, the guy who was uh, doing this, uh, this talk, he said to me, <clears throat> you know what James Brown's brother's name was? And I said, no, and he said, orange. And I thought he was kidding me until I found research <laughs> that yes, orange brown really existed. So think about it. We had uh, an actor who named her daughter Apple. And we all laughed, the nation laughed at that. I don't know. <laughs> don't know how the name came. Um, another is Charles Eldred. He gets his own chapter here. Yes. One of the most versatile figures in the history of Lycoming County journalism. It's quite a statement. Yes. What should we know about him? I need to go back and read that chapter now, don't I? <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> there, were, there were two dozen owners between 1801 and 1868. Why would it have changed hands so many times? It changed hands every couple of years. Um, I, I, think, I think a lot of it had to do with finances. Um, while there was some money to be made, it wasn't a, as lucrative a business as it was in the 20th century. So you had a lot of the proprietors uh, running into debt issues where they couldn't pay for, you know, new staff, printing presses, whatever it might be. So there were a lot of, there was a lot of selling and reselling of the various papers. Um, between 1801 and I believe 1995, there were nearly 40 newspapers that opened and closed in Lycoming County. And that just kind of gives you an overview. Um, and that doesn't include the ones that we've incorporated into, into our operation. So, so over time, there were a lot of financial reasons that caused people to buy and sell. And we went through a lot of ownership during the years. I mean, you would have some individuals, uh, in the, especially in the 19th century, where they don't own the paper for six months, two years. Now, once you got into the 20th century, you had stable ownership, sometimes for 50, 60 years within the same family. So that was a very volatile period from 1801 to about the 1880s where you see all the turnover. So the paper is now the Sun Gazette. Is the Gazette, has that been continually used for the entire history? Yes, yes, yes. Gazette, Gazette has been used since 1801 without a break. And then as the mergers happened over time, uh, in the 1870, the new newspaper was started, the Williamsport Sun, um, and uh, that was actually a rival to the Gazette. But a few years later, they went into business together. They still kept separate publications, but they were operating as a Sun Gazette company, even though there was a Williamsport Sun and a Williamsport Gazette and Bulletin. And the Gazette and Bulletin. Yes, if, if I could interject, there were eight different newspaper names by the time you got to the Williamsport Sun Gazette. Um, there were, it began with the Lycoming Gazette. Then it, there was the West Branch Bulletin. The West Branch Bulletin became the Gazette and Bulletin through another set of, you know, combinations. Um, then the Sun and Democrat was founded in 1870. That's where we get the Sun side of our name. From, from there, uh, it became the Weekly Banner, then the Sun and Banner, 
and then the Sun. And finally, uh, in 1955, there was a consolidation of the Sun and the, the Gazette and Bulletin to form the Williamsport Sun Gazette. When did you start using photographs? I would say they, they started being used loosely in the late 1890s. 1889. But not like you see today. You might have had a black and white photo one time. You know, I think when President you know, McKinley was shot in 1901, probably just prior to that 10 years, you started to see some. But it would have to be a pretty significant event to have a photo in the paper. That, that's right. You wouldn't right. just take a photo of a wagon going down the street because there were cute kids in it. It had to be, you know, historical significance, a major fire. Uh, a presidential assassination, a governor visits a town, something along those lines. But uh, starting around 1889, 1890, we started to get photographs in the paper, and then that started to expand uh, a little bit during the early part of the 20th century. But you really never had color photographs until, for all intents and purposes, oh, 19, 1990s. Yeah, 1990s. Really so it was all black and white up until that point. You would get color in the paper. They would occasionally use color ink Maybe on the 4th of July, there'd be a red, white, and blue motif of some sort. But it wasn't that often because color was very expensive and it was very difficult to incorporate in the types of presses that were in, in use during those days. When did you start the comics? I know comics began in the newspapers, in our paper. I know for sure in the early 20th, early 20th century, um, in the actual paper itself. Uh, the color Sunday comics didn't start until the 60s or so, but the actual daily comics or weekly comics go back at least 100 years. What are they like to read? Any of them funny? Uh, I, guess, I guess it depends on what period you were born and, and, and what you thought was humor at the time. I mean, if you look at some of the older comics, not only that we've run, but even other papers run nationally, you know, some of them still hold up today. A lot of them, they were period, you know, period sensitive. So um, I guess it depends on who was reading it at what period in time. And when you got to the 20th century, we had World War I, the Depression, World War II. How did they appear in the paper? Well, um, we covered, again, we would post outside on the side of our building. They would post uh, these big white sheets that they would put down as they found out about them, um, news about soldiers who had gone from area over there who, who had died. Um, people would come by and you know be able to read just on the side of our building um, the the list of names um, and they would put out other information like that as well um, our coverage during World War II we found some old papers that we were looking at that uh, were really interesting they printed draft numbers a whole section just on your draft number um, which you know that was required reading. Uh, that was how you found out about whether your number was, you know, coming up. And, and, and what was occurring at that time, you know, it was World War II was taking place in Europe, America was still trying to be pacifist and stay out of it. And it took a, a congressional vote, a vote in Congress in the House of Representatives that only passed by one vote to institute the draft in 1940. So that was a huge deal. I mean, it was an even split of those who wanted a military and those who wanted to stay small and isolationist. So when that happened and the new concept of draft numbers being given to men over a certain age, that was huge news. And as Laura said, there were full 24-page sections with nothing more than a, a person's name, town, and draft number. And then as the war progressed, of course, you know, we'd have normal war coverage like everyone else. We had a really interesting uh, incident happen during D-Day 
Um, there was such a rush to get the paper out on the morning of December 6, 1944, that the huge headline, the word invasion, was mistyped. Uh, it was probably, what, a four or five inch headline? It was an enormous, yeah. enormous letters, and they mistyped it, but it had to go out. You know, and, and the point was, we look back at it now and we see the typo, but at that time, nobody cared. They were just more in, 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 you know, more in tune with the fact that we had just launched a large invasion against Nazi Germany. So, so it's interesting how those little uh, flavors uh, occur during, during an actual historical event. Can you talk a little bit about the technology then? Like, what did it take to put a newspaper together during the First World War and Second okay. World War? At that point in time, uh, they were using the linotype to put it together. So uh, reporters would write their copy, um, their stories. Um, the editor would look at it. You know, it'd be all handwritten maybe. So we had typewriters at that point, but there were also times where there, they would just take handwritten notes and they would give it to people in the composing room who would then set the type using the linotype. The linotype involved uh, using hot lead to uh, you know, form the, the, the blanks. Uh, they would make the whole um, paper that way and then run it on our press. So it was very labor intensive. I mean, what, what, what had to be done back, there, back then compared to now might have taken 10 people for every, th every one that does this type of job today. It was heavily labored. Now everything is computer generated, goes right from, right from screen to plate. Uh, back then, everything was done by hand. If you had walked through the newsroom in the 20s or 30s, what would you have seen? You would have seen a lot of desks, a lot of typewriters, and a lot of people working hard. What else, Laura? Lots of smoke. You would have walked oh, through. Yes, I see, It would have looked like Pittsburgh in the 40s if you walked through the newsroom. When we started doing renovations to the downstairs of the building, and, and we started a little bit on the upstairs, there was so much smoke uh, stain, nicotine yeah. stain on the walls that it was incredible. I mean, it turned everything yellow and brown. And smoking was allowed, obviously, throughout yes. history, up until the last until the 30 90s. years or so. Yeah. In, until the, the 1990s. So imagine 100 years of smoke residue over everything, no. and you walk I, in. Cigars, yeah. I, I can recall <laughs> walking into the newsroom and seeing nothing but gray everywhere and you know certain reporters desks the ones that smoke there's that ashtray and it's it's overflowing with cigarette butts and ashes and you know and you'd also see a lot of coffee because they were either smoking or drinking coffee i went down the coffee path well we still see the coffee today because when you walk through this building you'll find orphan coffee cups everywhere where <laughs> something happened they got a quick call they had to run to a, to a scene or report and that coffee cup lays there for a day yes until they realize it's missing so have we have, have a strong tradition here. of coffee and smoke. <laughs> it fuels the news. Can you uh, talk about uh, the photographs in this book and what yes. you went through to select them? Okay. Um, the photos in this book, uh, we wanted to make sure that, A, we wanted to make sure we used a lot of color photos and have a nice color book, um, but we didn't start with the color photography until the 1990s, so most of it is black and white. Um, we have uh, depending on the era that you're getting the photos from, um, the earliest photos that go from like 1889 through the 1950s, um, those are all print. We started uh, with our negatives in archives in the 1950s. So we had some prints there, but we also had um, to look through the negatives. Um, I'd be researching on the microfilm and I'd see some photos. Oh, these are pretty cool photos. Um, let's see if I can find an image. 
it, it, it would, was found in the negative sleeves. So it took a little extra digging, you know, beyond just being able to look through files full of prints. Those were the easy ones. The easy ones came between 1889 and 1860. Things after that were a little more difficult to find because you had to get with a light table and a, a loop and be able to look at the negatives and find what you're looking for. A negative might have been printed on Thursday of a week. All the negatives for that particular week were stored in a sleeve that was dated for that week specifically. And so you'd be looking through three or four dozen uh, negatives to find one image. Oh, I want to ask you about this one. You have a picture of a hanging. Yes. How often did you come across things and thought, wow, oh, that's yeah, got to go to the book? We have a whole folder just on hangings. Um, really? Yeah, because that was, the, that was common practice back in the 1800s, early 1900s, until um, it stopped in Pennsylvania. Uh, people didn't have TV and radio to entertain themselves, and I always marveled at the number of people that would show up for watching a, a hanging or just like going to a show out in the park. You know, it was uh, amazing. A lot of pictures of natural disasters, fires, floods. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, that was a natural for the newspaper to go out and photograph and document. Um, they were probably the easiest photos to find because there were just lots and lots of those. There's a lot of flooding over the years? Oh, yeah. Um, we live in a really water-rich uh, area. Uh, we've got the Susquehanna River cutting, you know, Peril along town, we're right on the on the banks of the Susquehanna, and then you have all these uh, these creeks and other tributaries that flow into them that all flow into the river. So yes, before the levee was built, um, flooding was very common right in Williamsport. Um, in the uh, 1950s, you see 1940s, 1950s, uh, you see the effort to build the levee uh, had begun actually before World War II, but then with the war going on, they had to suspend operations for a short time, but then they picked it up again and, and finished it. It took over a decade to build. For people who are not familiar with Williamsport, can you describe the levee? I mean, is it like something in New Orleans? It's just like you'd, you'd imagine a, a dike or, 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 or a bank to be. It's basically a, a high wall of water that surrounds both sides of the river to, to, to increase the level of the channel. And the entire uh, area of Williamsport and South Williamsport are protected by a series of dikes and levees that keeps the water out. And um, pumps that keep going? They, they have yes. pumps in an emergency. They have certain areas that are set up as designated flood zones. If, if worse comes to worse, they know there's certain field areas that they can flood to try and keep the water out of the central city. There's also, uh, as you head west towards Lock Haven and Clinton County, there are a series of, um, of portable gates and doors that will seal off railroad cuts that go through the dike so they can help prevent that water from pouring. So it's a very elaborate system. Um, we're in the process now in the city of looking at doing some upgrades, millions and millions of dollars that need to be generated to just do some upgrades on some of the oldest parts of the levee. But over the years, especially in the past 50 years, it's definitely protected the, the core of the city. But prior to that, as Laura said, you had a number of floods. We've experienced a number of fires to major historic buildings, the old high school, department stores, uh, churches. Downtown. Uh, we can talk more about our downtown. Uh, we've had situations where the whole town was flooded and caught on fire. 
you have instances, I don't know what the actual date was, was that the early part of the 20th century? I think there were a couple right. examples. Right, 1936 we had a pretty big uh, flood and there were a few buildings downtown that you know we have photos of that had caught on fire because the emergency workers couldn't get to the places to put out fires when there was flooding all around. Has there been flooding in downtown since the levee went in? No. I don't believe so. No, you would have a couple areas in the low-lying areas that might be a little wet, but you've really not had flooding. Yeah. Probably um, the most significant flooding uh, since the levee was built was Agnes in 1972. And there were areas that in the city that did receive water, but they weren't um, like right downtown. Uh, most of Williamsport was protected. And, and, and we found that pictures like that, the natural disasters, I mean, that has such an impact on a person's life, especially if you're a young child or even elderly, they, that, that's something they remember their whole life. So it was important for us to put in the fires, the floods, the natural disasters, just to help, help chronicle um, and reinforce what a lot of these folks remember when they were growing up or have heard about as kids. Speaking of photographs, there's one in here. You met Ringo Starr. Yes, yes, it was, it was very interesting. It was the only time I've ever speechless. Um, <laughs> I've, I played the drum since I was about eight years old. Um, loved Ringo, Keith Moon, John Bonham, all the famous rock drummers. And uh, over the years I've been involved in concert promotion. So what we've done at the Sun Gazette, we started an events division where we have events like bridal shows, book sales, and now concerts. So we had an opportunity to bring Ringo to the Community Arts Center, which is right next door, about 2,200 people. And we also joke that it's, it's the closest you'll ever get to Ringo without being arrested <laughs> because it's such an intimate setting. It's only 2,000 seats. And he did a, the show sold out in two hours on Valentine's Day. And the show was set for, I think, June of that year. A tremendous opportunity. I got a chance to do a little bit of meet and greet, talk for a couple of minutes. Uh, but it took a while for me to actually get the courage up to talk. So, but it was one of those fascinating nights. It was great for the community. Um, we made a little bit of a profit on it. The Community Arts Center made a little bit of a profit on it. So it was a win-win for the town. You said you've been in the newspaper business three decades? Since 1984. How has the, the business changed in the time you've been in it? Okay, well, when I began, I was seated at a desk that was probably built in the 1800s, and I had a typewriter. Yes, we developed uh, our photos were taken on film and uh, you didn't know what you were getting when you were out in the field shooting. Uh, you would come back and hope that out of your 20 images that, you, that your film would allow you to shoot, that you had something worth printing. Um, you didn't always know. Today you can take your camera, take a picture, look at it, oh, it didn't work out, let's shoot some, some more. Um, you know, back then uh, you would, write your story, you would type it up, the editor would take a look at it, he didn't like this, he'd take a black marker and cross out the area, you would double space it, he would find a way to type in the double space space, the line in between, the correction, what he wanted it to say, and then it would go through a scanner. And that was our earliest computer technology, um, it was part of that system, um, they would, scan it in and somehow it would come out on a nice clean column of copy that would go into the composing room. You had 30, 40 men working in the composing room uh, using uh, hot wax to paste up uh, what the pages would look, look like. And from there they would go to a camera room, they would be shot, prepared for the press, 
They'd make plates out of them and put them on the press. The press we're, we're still using, but just about everything else it seems has changed. Were there many women doing what you were doing when you started? I would say there were probably, um, it was pretty divided. There probably were more men in the newsroom than there were women. Uh, no, actually there were. Um, it's, it, it was, I didn't think that it was difficult to get into. Um, the, the, men, the, the men certainly dominated it though. When the computers came in and the typewriters went out, were there some grizzled old newspaper people who just hated it and just couldn't adapt? Oh, there were, yes. Um, there were some changes uh, in staff, I recall, um, as we went into it. Most people loved it because it did make the work a lot easier. Um, but there were some that, uh, you know, change is hard. Change is hard. It probably impacted our composing room the heaviest um, because that was the start of phasing out that part of the operation. Bernie, how long have you been in the newspaper business? Uh, I've been in the business total for about 25 years. Uh, my first 15 years were in advertising sales, uh, both as an over-the-road salesperson for newspaper and also uh, as ad director running some ad departments. And for the past 10 years, I've been here as publisher. How has the business of newspapering changed in it, your time? It, it's, it's changed tremendously. I mean, when I started out uh, 25 years ago, we were still um, pretty much the only main source for local news. Over the years, you've seen the int int in, uh, introduction of uh, online and, and social media and some of the other uh, new cable networks and so forth. So there's definitely an impact. Um, financially, things have changed. I and mean, we have a situation now where, you know, years ago, you had lots of full page ads, inserts in the paper for, to generate advertising revenue. Now when you're seeing a lot of the big retailers go out of business, uh, we have a mall about 15 minutes up the road that lost all four of its uh, main, uh, main stores. Uh, I think it was Penny's, Macy's, Bonton, Toys R Us, Sears, all closed within 18 months. Tremendous impact on our bottom line when something like that happens. It's very hard to make it up. Um, the other thing we run into in this day and age is um, a lot of the folks who are the loyalist customers, the people over 50 as they pass away, uh, their children don't necessarily buy their homes and stay in the area. A lot of times the homes get raised. Uh, we're, we're losing some of that repetition uh, subscriber. And the biggest change I've seen over the last 10 years is the way people consume their news, not so much online print or TV, but more for how they read the news. In years past, someone would look at a news source, whether it's a newspaper or TV, and you'd look at all the different stories. You'd like some, you'd dislike some, you'd be indifferent about some. Today, if there's one story in that paper a reader doesn't like, the whole paper's no good. You're no good. You know, people are tending now to generate, to basically migrate towards only the topics and the ideologies they like, and they don't look at it as, well, there's a different view. They're offended by the different view. And I find that the hardest part to process. The old, the old adage of all information is good, take it how you will, leave some, use some, it's kind of gone away. Now everybody just wants their niche information the way they want to see it, whether it's their political view, whether it's a religious view, whatever it might be. And that's made it more and more, dif more, and more difficult for most newspapers and most major news sources, traditional news sources, to keep up with the changing, changing views. So you're the only paper in town. So uh, how do you walk that line between actually 
writing things that are of interest and right. alienating people who would be offended by it. Well, we're, we, we are the only daily paper. There are a couple weekly shoppers that really aren't news gatherers, but more or less put out advertisements and information about events. So as the newspaper of record, we're obligated to print it if it's news. So we don't worry too much about the alienation. We deal with it when somebody calls up because they didn't like a story or they didn't like a political cartoon, either they stay or they go. But we can't be worried about that. We have to basically be the newspaper of record, follow a certain philosophy because no one else is gonna cover city hall or school board meetings or what's going on with you know some of our state legislators if it isn't the local newspaper. So we have an obligation not only for now but for posterity to make sure that we do the best job we can. And at times you lose some subscribers, you make some back up. I mean, it just, it's, it's an ebb and flow. You just have to deal with it, but you can't compromise the fact that it's up to us to report the news because no one else is able to do it. Do you focus now with, with uh, the proliferation of websites with national world news, do you, do you focus more on local news than you might have 10 or 20 years ago? Yeah, yeah, we use that as our philosophy now. We figure if you want to find out what's going on overseas or wars in, you know, in Asia or the Middle East, wherever it might be, you can find all that on the nightly news, the cable networks or online. So we, we basically say local is king. We put most of our effort into local uh, covering city hall covering school districts, covering local sports, which is tremendous for us. We have 17 high schools that we cover religiously, every sport, especially football, basketball, baseball. And, uh, and we also cover some of the smaller events like church outings, you know, a fire hall needs to raise money for a new pumper truck. So most of our emphasis now is on local within like a six county area. Um, we will use AP stories for major news issues, obviously if it's a statewide election or, or there's a, an, an attack somewhere, a terrorist attack, of course all that goes on A1. But by and large, 90% of our paper now is locally generated. Uh, Laura, what is your job here? I'm the editor. And what does that involve? Okay, well, um, as editor I'm in charge of the newsroom. I'm the department head. Uh, I'm writing editorials. Um, overseeing staff, uh, coordinating among the various departments within the newsroom itself. You've got sports, you've got lifestyle. Uh, I was the news editor for a good number of years before I became editor just in the last year. And at that point in time, you know, we were, I was making the assignments and now I have a city editor who's taking that on. So it's, it's changing. Um, but yeah, we're, our, our emphasis, our focus is on getting out to as many areas of the community as we possibly can to balance the negative news with the positive to make sure that, you know, it's a priority that we get out to the events that, you know, some might consider a little softer, um, but they're just as important to balancing out the paper when we cover a homicide, you know, one day it's nice to have something that's not as not as negative um, the next. Um, we want to make sure we get to our county government, our city government, townships, boroughs, school districts, police and court news, fire news. Well, that'll have everything. to be the last word. We are out of time. We've been speaking with Bernie Orovec and Laura Jansen. They put together this book, A Community Keystone, the official history of the Williamsport Sun Gazette. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Enjoyed it. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. 
Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.